Okay, so we come to our passage this morning. Uh, Genesis 11, you'll find it helpful to have it open in front of you. And I want to talk first of all about untold stories. There's a bit of a fascination at the moment uh, about untold stories. You know, the BBC website has had all sorts of things, you know, Abafan, the untold story, Abuse, the untold story. If you go onto Amazon, you'll find there are over 9,000 books uh, that are entitled The Untold Story. I think that's quite ironic, really, isn't it? Because actually, once you tell it, it's told, isn't it? It's not an untold story. Uh, but here I do think, <laughs> risking the cliche, that we have a bit of an untold story. Uh, the story of Terah. Now, Terah is famous for being Abraham's dad. I'll call him Abraham or Abram. The two names are the same person. But he's by no means a central character of scripture. He's just there in the background. I believe he's a real historical character with a real historical Story, And we get a bit of a glimpse of that in our passage. But it seems a little bit random for the, the flow of the story, doesn't it? Why are we told really about terror? Well, the same reasons that the book as a whole was written. I've been saying over the last few weeks that the book of Genesis was written by Moses in the wilderness to tell the, the people in the wilderness that leaving Egypt was a good idea and pressing on to take the promised land is a good idea. That's what they must do. That's what God wants them to do. So really, this is here for the same reason, to tell them that. But it's also then a reminder to us that we must persevere in our faith and keep going to the end. That might not be immediately obvious from the list of sort of names and things like that, but we'll see it as we go through. So our first point as we look at this passage is another Noah verses 10 to 26. I'm not going to read them to us again. Nick did a brilliant job of pronouncing all those names. But we can see right at the very end, uh, in verse 26, when Terah had lived 70 years, he fathered Abram, Naor, and Haran. Here we have a man with three sons. Uh, Nobody else in this genealogy, if you look back up, are we given more than one name. We're just told, you know, one son, and then moves on to the next one. We're told they have other sons and daughters, but they're not named. Well, here we have a man with three sons. Now, I should say, it's three sons that we're told about here. We actually find out later on that he has other children. But again, we've said all the way through that Moses is making decisions as he explains uh, what's going on. It could be that he has daughters, but he doesn't mention them here. But the three sons he has, well, they're not Shem, Ham, and Japheth, but they're Abram, Nahor, and Haran. But the idea of three sons, well, we've we've met it one place before, haven't we? With uh, With Noah. And we haven't had that many characters really in the the Bible so far. So to sort of frame it in the same way makes it feel a bit Noah-esque, doesn't it? And after all, he was the last big character that we saw in the book. So I like to say perhaps this is raising the stakes a little bit as we read. I think we're supposed to sort of ask the question, could could this be the Noah that doesn't fail? Could it be that we're going to get another Noah who doesn't get drunk and curses children like the first Noah did? So there's three children, which sort of makes us think a little bit of Noah. There's also ten generations, ten generations that we see in that section. Noah was tenth from Adam and the end of the genealogy in chapter five. Well, here we have another ten generations. And again, that should be making us think, well, is there going to be another Noah uh, at the end of them? If you're sceptical about numbers... Uh, you'll notice on the back of your notice sheet there, there's Jude chapter 1, verse uh, 14. 
It was also said about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with his ten thousands of his holy ones. And then in Matthew's gospel, it talks about 14. So the generation from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. So there does seem to be something going on with numbers in the genealogies. And as we mentioned last week, Eber, who seems to be this uh, big character, the father of the Hebrews, was 14th uh, from Adam. Now, I'm not saying that this is how it functions all the way through the Bible. I'm not agreeing with Islam that there's a prophet every seventh generation. What I am saying is that in the context of this book, the tenth generation and the seventh generation are significant. So, as we reach another ten, are we thinking another Noah? You know, maybe a rescuer, a righteous man, a turner of the tides. Thing is, though, Terah isn't the tenth generation. Here's a, a grid, I don't know if you can see that. Oh well, so we've got Enoch there 7th, Eber there 14th, Noah 10th. But actually, it's Abraham down at the bottom that's the next 10. More on that next week. But actually, if there is going to be another Noah, perhaps it's not Terah, it's going to be Abraham. But there's something else uh, in this genealogy which uh, helps us uh, see that there's a clue towards the Noah sort of uh, idea. Uh, there's something missing in our genealogy as you look down. If you flick over, just uh, keep your finger there, but just look over at chapter 5 of Genesis, where we have that uh, big long genealogy that we looked at last year. There's something missing in this genealogy that's there in the other one. So just picking one at random. Uh, Thus all the days of Methuselah were 969 years, and he died. All the way through in chapter 5, there's so-and-so lived so long, and he died, and he died, and he died, apart from Enoch, who gets taken up to heaven. But do you see that actually that gives a very depressing note to Genesis 5? But here the fact that they die isn't mentioned. So same author, same structure, but no death. Death is missing. Now again, that's a deliberate decision by Moses to either not mention it here... Or two mention it earlier on. Either way, this feels a lot more hopeful than the other one. Even though actually they're dying younger uh, as we go through this genealogy. It's a bit, bit of a digression. It's not saying they don't die. Actually their, their ages of death get closer to what we have uh, as they come off uh, out of the ark and into the world. That might be through inbreeding issues. It might be through climate change. But I'm digressing there really. But the whole thing gives you a sort of Less cursy, less judgmentally feel. It's a bit like when somebody asks you how your day's been. We've all had that situation, don't they? When they just want to know a little bit more than, you know, are you alright? Yeah, I'm okay. End of conversation. When you say, how's your day been? You can make choices, can't you, about what you tell people. Uh, you can say, oh, you know, oh, I was late to work this morning, or, you know, it was really hard, and, uh, or you can say, oh, I got engaged today. That might be the same day, depending on how you frame it. So they're both true. But here, by not mentioning death, he's actually giving us hope. He's saying that perhaps, you know, this cycle of sin and judgment that we've seen so far is not the whole picture. So, another Noah? Well, maybe, but it's probably more likely to be Abraham. But we'll see more of that next week. Um, The next thing that we see, though, is that we have a mixed-up family. A mixed-up family. Just have a look at verses 
27 to 30. Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred, in, the, in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah uh, and Issachar. Now, Sarai was barren. She had no child. So what we have here is a bit of a mixed-up family. We're given very scant detail, but we can see a few things, a few little snippets into Terah's life. The first thing that we see is that Terah sees his son, Haran, die. Now, despite the order that it's put in, Haran is probably the oldest uh, son. There's something strange going on, uh, if you think through the book of Genesis, with the firstborns being rejected uh, and the secondborn uh, being the one who's, who's picked up the promises. We also see something strange in Genesis and Exodus with the firstborn dying. That comes up again and again and again uh, and finds its, its, well, finds its fulfillment in Christ, doesn't it, as Jesus dies. But in Exodus we see it in the Passover as well. But his oldest son dies, even while Terah is alive. Now that's very sad uh, for, for Terah. But he's not the first person to outlive their child. Shem outlives his son and his grandson. Surug outlives Nahor. But this is the first time when it's been pointed out. We're actually told that he was there, that he was present, that he was still alive when his son dies. And it seems as though it was not a death from old age, as the others seem to be. It seems to be, you know, they reached the, the end of their life. But this seems to be somehow premature. And it seems that Terah has a hard time getting over it. And understandably, I mean, these are real people, aren't they, that we're talking about. It's hard to get over something like that. He refuses to let go of Haran, though it would seem, quite literally. As later on we'll find that he settles in a place called Haran, the name of his dead son. Now that's either an unhappy coincidence, or else Abraham actually names the place after his dead son. Which is not great. I mean, it has echoes of Cain again, doesn't it? Do you remember Cain who built a city and named it after his son in Genesis 4? So it seems with Terah we've got some unresolved grief issues going on here around his son's death. So that's the first thing that we sort of get a glimpse into. The second thing that we see is that Abraham, or Abram, is married to Sarai, his half-sister. Now we're not told at this point that she's his half-sister, um, but uh, Sarai is mentioned is, is that. So Genesis 20, verse 12, again on the back of your notice sheets. So this is Abraham speaking about Sarai. Besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. So Abraham is married to his half-sister. Now that would be forbidden by the laws of the, that the Israelites are given in the wilderness. The, the laws that uh, Moses would have explained to them. So Leviticus 18 verse 9. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your sister, your father's daughter or your mother's daughter, whether brought up in the family or in another home. So it's quite categorical that half-sisters are, are, not, um, are not legitimate to get married to. Some have associated her with Iskar, uh, who's mentioned at the end of the verse, which would be Abraham's niece. Uh, in that way, she would somehow be the granddaughter of Abraham's father. But it would seem a little bit strange to have the same person with two different names within two verses of each other, wouldn't it? That would be very, very strange. 
And it would begin to explain why she's called his daughter-in-law rather than his daughter in verse 31. Uh, so Terah took his son, Abraham, lost his daughter, and Sarah, his daughter-in-law. But it wouldn't explain why she's not called his granddaughter. Now, marrying nieces isn't specifically mentioned in Leviticus, but there is a sort of catch-all statement, Leviticus 18, verse 6. None of you shall approach any one of his close relatives to uncover uh, their nakedness. I am the Lord. So does anyone know what that banging is? I'm just going to close this door. Um... So there's not, other, there's not actual command not to marry your niece, but it is a bit creepy, isn't it? As well as, well as being um, uh, being sort of covered by close relatives, uh, it's not quite as bad as your half sister, but it's still a bit strange, isn't it? The plain reading is that she's Abraham's half sister, which means either that Terah had several wives at once, because we're told that she had another uh, mother, uh, either that Terah was widowed or divorced at some point. That Terah had concubines, perhaps, sex slaves, which was a common but disgusting practice at the time. Or that Terah had affairs with other women. Now, some of these options cast Terah in a better light than others. But it still shows us this idea that things are fairly mixed up, a bit more um, messy than we thought. So there's no reason to look for the best option here. Actually, Terah was human and as such sinful. It could be... That it, there's all sorts of sinful reasons why you could have a daughter by another woman. And on top of that, we're actually told in Joshua that Terah was a pagan. So Joshua 24, verse 2. And Joshua said to all the people, This says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. So we've no reason to read in the best motives and the best practice into Terah at all. He wasn't really even a believer. He didn't receive the divine call of God. It was Abraham. In Acts, we're actually told that it was Abraham that was called while he was still in Ur. And that Terah sort of tags along as they go along. So it's not that Terah is setting out on a noble pilgrimage which Abraham completes. It's actually that Abraham is called to leave his land and his father's house. And Terah sort of goes along for the journey. If anything, Terah is a hindrance to the call of Abraham. But it gets even more messed up. Nahor is married to his niece. Now we've already mentioned that that's not good. But on top of that, his niece is his dead brother's daughter. We're also told that Sarai is childless. Um, Now within a verse of Sarai being mentioned, we're told that she's barren and has no child. It's a comprehensive statement implying that she not only has no children, but is effectively infertile. Now, at the point when they leave, Abraham is already 70 and Sarai is 60. So with life cycles coming closer to ours, as we see that they are with the the genealogy, she was already beyond the age of bearing children when we first meet her, or at least very close. Now, it's not saying that that's a moral failure. Actually, not being able to have children is is awful, isn't it? It's not to do with our sin. It's just part of, of life. But it is a family tragedy, isn't it? That was a culture where especially a good number of children were seen as a great blessing. I don't know about you, but when I see in the papers a a family with a good number of children, you know, you you tend to notice that the headlines are to do with sponging from the states, aren't they? Like the family in Morecambe. That tends to be what it's about. But in the old world, they were seen as a blessing. Whereas our world, we tend to see them as, uh, as getting in the way of our lives. 
But infertility then as now is emotionally and physically draining. It strains relationships, and here it threatens legacies. Abraham's name risks disappearing from the earth. So we can see that the situation is very, very messy. But what are the implications for us? Well, this family is more messed up than you find on Jeremy Kyle or Jerry Springer, isn't it? Let's face it. Have you ever watched Jeremy Kyle? Jerry Springer a few years ago? You get the sort of thing... I, I, I don't often stop for very long, but you get the sort of headlines along the bottom, don't you? Telling you what they're talking about. Could you imagine the headlines for this one? You know, I'm in love with my dead brother's daughter. I'm sleeping with my half-sister. I just can't get over my dead son. I'm trying to have a baby with my half-brother, but it's just not happening. I mean, that's even extreme for those shows, isn't it? But when God steps in and does something, he doesn't choose perfect people. He chooses messed up people to display display his grace and his glory. He starts with us in the mess. He doesn't expect us to come out of the mess uh, before he can deal with us. And as they set out with Canaan, we'll see that actually they've got all sorts of issues, haven't they? A pagan father with grief issues. A man who's married to and is sleeping with his half-sister who has fertility issues. A man who's married to his dead brother's daughter. And his dead brother's son as well, who will end up having children with his two daughters. And yet, God will use these messed up sinful people to start the fight back against sin. And he still uses messed up sinful people. They're called Christians. Let's not think of ourselves as above the mess. If your life is messy, welcome to church. That's who we are. We are in the mess and God is with us there. It also means that we can't be holier than thou with people whose lives seem more messed up than our own. That stinks more of middle class snobbery and Phariseeism than biblical Christianity. Church is not a club where you have to look like your life and your family are all sorted. It's not a group where your life must be on an even keel before you join. I mean, even in the New Testament, look at the church in Corinth. People are turning up drunk to communion. And one guy is sleeping with his stepmother. Why don't we see that happening in our churches? It's a good question though, isn't it? Is it because we're actually holier than they were? Or is it because we send out the message that if you have problems, you're not welcome? God doesn't ask us to sort out the mess and then come to him. And we know that, don't we? But how often do we apply it? God enters into our mess, as he does with this group as they set out to Canaan. He goes with them. And we'll see that's just what he does in our last section. A failed traveller, verses 31 and 32. Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son, Abram's wife, And they went forth together from Ur of Chaldeans to go to the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Here we see a failed traveller. Terah sets out. But as we've seen, actually, it was Abraham that got the call. Terah seems to leave the group here, but actually it's Abraham that was told to go. And they make it to Haran. That's about halfway there. So here's a map. Uh, Haran's up at the top. Ah, just the pointy thing. 
So they start off from around about there to around about there. But this is where they really want to be. They walk about 600 miles uh, to Haran from Ur. Uh, Abraham, Sarai and Lot will walk another 400 miles in the next passage. It's almost a proclaimer's song because between them they walk about 1,000 miles uh, from Ur to Canaan. Um, But here they've walked 600 of those 1,000 miles. But they don't make it all the way. Now as they set off, Abraham or Abraham is 70 and Terah is 200. That's the best reckoning that we've got. Terah dies at 205. So it seems as though they spend around five years in Haran. And Abraham leaves there when his father dies. In other words, the older generation that comes with him, for whatever reason, don't make it to the promised land. Now again, if you've been around the last few weeks, then at the beginning we said, didn't we, that Genesis was written by Moses to say that leaving Egypt was the right choice and they should press on to the promised land. Well, here history is repeating itself before it happened, if you like. Terah, the father, even though he left, doesn't make it to the promised land. The older generation dies in the middle. And it's going to take Abraham, the man of faith, to press on to take the promised land. And I want to argue there's an explicit, or implicit, sorry, warning to the readers here. Not everybody who sets off makes it there. It's not enough to set off, we actually need to arrive. That was true for the original hearers and the original readers. And the same is true uh, for us. If you just turn up Hebrews 3, sorry I should have put the verse numbers on here, but Hebrews 3. In the larger Bibles it's uh, page uh, 1104. It's a fairly long reading, but they'll explain why we're talking about this. So Hebrews 3, verse 12. Take care, brothers, lest in any of you there be an unbelieving, evil unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. And it is said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who was it who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt, led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for forty years? Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as it did to them. But the message they heard did not benefit them, because they they were not united by faith with those who listened. For those who have believed enter that rest. As he has said, I swore in my wrath they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world... For he has somewhere spoken of a seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage he says, they shall not enter my rest. Therefore, sorry, since, therefore, it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. Again he appoints a certain day, today, saying through David so long afterwards in the words already quoted, today if you hear his voice, 
Do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Do you see there that he's saying this group in the wilderness, they set off, but they didn't make it. Don't be like them. And we, all of us, are en route, if you like, uh, to the promised land. Our promised rest, the new creation. Is it possible, though, that some of us have set off from Ur, if you like, but have settled in Haran, or settled in the wilderness? What I mean by that is that we've begun our walk with Christ, but we've stalled, we've settled. We don't know why they settled in Haran, do we? Some have speculated that Terah was ill because he was so old. Some people think it was unbelief. Some people think it was to do with his dead son, Haran. I think we're deliberately not told. Because actually there are lots of reasons why we can get stuck on the way out there that make us settle in Haran and not push on. Perhaps grief. Perhaps a relationship. Perhaps busyness. Perhaps boredom. Perhaps doubts. Perhaps disappointments. Perhaps we don't know why we're stuck. Perhaps we're in Haran right now. Or perhaps we haven't got there yet. But these are things that we'll need to be beware of. Friends, beware of staying too long in Haran, if that's where you are. Because soon you will settle there. And there is a danger that you will die there. You'll be the seed that sprung up quickly but was choked The seed that grew up and was scorched so it didn't make it to the harvest. There's a risk that you will die and never make it to the promised land, the new creation. But before I scare you too much, it's worth remembering that it's not just Terah that stops in Haran. Abraham and his family do too. The difference is that whereas Terah dies, Abraham presses on to the promised land. And we need to work out which one we're going to be. All of us can get stuck in Haran from time to time. But what we need to do is have faith like Abraham and press on. We don't need to end up like Terah, who never made it to the promised land. Abraham stayed in Haran a little while. But in the end, he moved on. He pressed on and and made it to the promised land. It reminds me a little bit of Pilgrim's Progress. I don't know if you've read that book, it's a, it's a classic, it's brilliant. An allegory of the Christian life. There's Christian going on his pilgrimage to the celestial city on the other side of the river. And on the way, do you know, he actually stops off in many places, doesn't he? In Doubting Castle, Vanity Fair, the Hill of Difficulty. And people who used to travel with him actually stay in those places. But Christian stops there. But what makes Christian different is that actually he gets on his feet and he moves on and presses on to the celestial city. So what's it going to be? What's your story going to be? The untold story of terror, passing into obscurity, obsessed with the past and dead to the future? Or like Abraham, the pioneer of our faith, who pressed on to take the future, even though he didn't know where God was taking him. But he trusted God and he got there. As to how, well, we'll begin to find that out next week. But don't let your story be an untold one.